0: for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about The Wrestler, the 2008 drama directed by Darren Aronofsky, starring Mickey Rourke, and with supporting performances by Marissa Tomei and Evan Rachel Wood. High-level plot summary, Rourke plays an aging professional wrestler who 20 years earlier was a headliner, but now barely ekes out a living performing on the New Jersey circuit. Hijinks ensue. At Rotten Tomatoes, the Tomato Mito score is 98%, and the critics' consensus reads, Mickey Rourke gives a performance for the ages in The Wrestler, a richly affecting, heart-wrenching, yet ultimately rewarding drama. Here on Below the Line, we're not focused on what the critics thought, but once again, the reviews are dead on for this movie. It's an amazing film and well worth your time. We're continuing our series of episodes focused on the property department, and my guests today are the props team from this film. First, property master Jeff Butcher. Jeff, welcome to Below the Line. Hello. Jeff, you've been working in props for more than 30 years, and you've been a property master on, tell me if this is still correct, 36 feature films. What are you working on now?
1: 37. Um, (laughs) Now I'm working on a television show called Katie Keene, which is a spinoff of Riverdale, which is based on Archie Comics. You know, it's four young people trying to make it in New York. It's sort of like um, fame meets friends, I guess. I don't know. Something like that.
0: Jeff, I will watch for that. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. Next, uh, returning to the show is Dan Fisher, who worked as the assistant property master on The Wrestler. Dan, if Below the Line was a bar, you'd be considered a regular by now. Welcome back.
2: Glad to be back, Skid. I feel like now I can, I can just call you Skid without feeling <laughs> awkward about it or anything. I'm becoming like the David Brenner of your, uh, of your podcast.
0: <laughs> Dan, I'm glad we got you over the hump on you're calling me Skid now. It's less confusing to our viewers. Mm-hmm. So I know that you and Jeff first met back when you were both production assistants in 1986 on Matewan. Tell me a little about your shared history.
2: Uh, our shared history was that, yeah, uh, that was my first job. I don't think it was Jeff's. We both started out as set dressing production assistants. He wound up going with props. And then, uh, but yeah, and we did that job together. And then when that job was done, I had to figure out what to do next. Uh, I was still living in West Virginia at the time. And Jeff said, hey, I've got an apartment in New York uh, uh, and, and we need a roommate. So I moved to New York in the autumn of 86. And we lived together for four years and had been friends for 33 years.
0: Well, I want to talk more about the stuff you've done together. But first, let's get back to the wrestler. And listeners should consider this their spoiler warning. Let's start with the filming logistics. I mentioned earlier that the film is set in New Jersey. Is this where you actually filmed?
1: Um, yes. Um, the film was shot almost entirely in New Jersey. Uh, we, we shot at um, you know, veterans organizations and VFWs and that kind of thing, wherever they would normally hold wrestling Events we we sort of crashed their events with you know with arrangements and we would film around You know actual wrestling nights Well, my my memory is a little different correct me Jeff I I had thought
2: that we actually put on the wrestling events uh, am I wrong about that that my thought was we filmed every Saturday night for about Four or five weeks straight. We worked Saturdays and we would we would put on a show The deal was people got to come in for free with the caveat that you, you then watch Mickey work do his scenes and you have to clap and, and, and really participate. And I thought it was really genius of production, whoever came up with the idea. You know, you, to, keep the, to keep the quote unquote background pumped for these fictional wrestling episodes, we'd have real wrestlers, which is also fiction actually, but we'd have real wrestlers come in between and do their thing, put on shows. And that just kept the audience engaged. Uh, and then we got that engagement on our film, but maybe you're right and I'm wrong. Maybe it was all, it was all we just we were part of of this, this local scene.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether they were entirely put on by us or or we were making arrangements with existing ones and joining them. But it was, um, yeah, they would they you know real wrestlers, so called real wrestlers would wrestle, and then we would you know Mickey would do a scene or Mickey Standin would do a scene, and then we go back to another wrestling match. And that was how they and, kept the audience pumped. Yeah, and also too, we
2: used a lot of those, those in-between scene wrestlers as, back, as, as little bit parts. He'd come behind, backstage and it'd be like, great show tonight, uh, Ram and things like that. And I thought those guys were great. You know that, that they, they weren't actors, they weren't you know, people putting on the costumes and doing an affectation, they were just themselves.
1: Yeah, now it was it's amazing that Darren was able to get the performances he did out of all those non actors. Uh, you know, that the scene at the beginning where Mickey is in the, the locker room backstage and he's just um, talking to the actual wrestlers, uh, it's, it was all good stuff. It was all Mickey improving and you know with non actors and 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 Darren figuring out how to you know place that handheld camera where it was all came off very realistically.
0: So you guys have mentioned a couple of things. You're talking about handheld cameras. You're talking about a lot of uh, improvisation. Tell me more about working with Darren Aronofsky. How does he run his set? What what does he do to collect the film that he does?
2: Well, one thing I remember is that very early on, Darren told Jeff and myself, I don't want director's chairs on this set. I don't want a video village. Because if Mickey wants to make a sudden right-hand turn that we didn't expect, I want the camera to follow him, and I don't want to see a bunch of producers staring at a monitor behind him. So it was, it was clear to us. We were not supposed to bring directors' chairs on our truck nor set them up. And, and Darren, actually, for his monitor, he had what was called a clamshell. It's a very small video wireless unit that he wore with a strap around his neck. And, and he, would, he would be by the camera watching the actor with his eyes. But he would also look down to see what the shot was doing. And I thought that was an incredible technique that a lot of directors should adopt.
0: You know, something you mentioned that folks, uh, some of our listeners might not know, but yes, there's all these chairs on set, these director's chairs for various folks. And you guys have been doing this long enough. Maybe you know some of the history. That has become the responsibility of the prop department to provide these chairs on a lot of sets. There could be 10 to 15 chairs there in some some sets that I've been on.
1: I just worked on a Spielberg job and Spielberg has his own tent with his own... It's called a Hollywood chair, which is, you know, it weighs about a ton and it's very padded and, and uh, heavy in his own tent, you know, with a little fan and stuff. And then there's the producer village where there's another, you know, 14 chairs, um, you know, Tony Kushner surrounded by, you know, 14 writers, producers and visitors. And every day a list of guests, you know, today we're going to have four guests because we have four more chairs out. It's, it's a full-time job, just then they, they move the camp. First of all, they set it up in the wrong place to begin with every day, and then, uh, and then it has to move all day. So yeah, it's, it's kind of ridiculous.
2: No, we could do an entire episode about nothing but the politics of directors chairs. Um, <laughs> on my cruise, I have had times where I brought on an extra prop person for the job that we have to move tents and chairs a bunch of times a day, and we have so many chairs that, that has justified the expense of, of an additional person. Uh, I did a job one time where the director had four kids that were coming in on location for, for a, a few days. And they're like, well, you have to have chairs for all the kids, and their names have to be printed on the back of their seat backs. And, <laughs> and, and this, P.S., this was like one of those, we have no money jobs. So, you know, I'm skimping on prop, my prop budget, but we have to have each of those kids' names on the back of the chair. And, of course, the kids aren't going to sit in chairs. Kids don't sit in chairs. Kids run around. That's what they do. So, it, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's all part of the game. We play it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, We'll save a deeper chair discussion for another episode, as you suggest, Dan. But uh, for now, I want to talk more about wrestling matches. Specialized props aside – what are you responsible for providing on a big match like that?
1: Well, for the wrestling matches, you know, Mickey had to get taped up before every match, and uh, and he would request a airplane bottle of Jack Daniels, that um, because wrestlers will will drink a, that much Jack Daniels before a match to improve the vascularity of their veins, he would say. And uh, and, I, and I and I don't think, I think he really was drinking it for the vascularity of his veins, not because of any, for any other reason, even though he was, you know, a hardcore motherfucker. Um, and then, uh, you know, we had to, with his uh, trainer, we had to supply his weights. You know, he would always pump up before, before doing anything. Yeah. I mean, in general, that's what we would provide for, uh, for all the, the bouts. And then there were specific props to, to different matches.
0: Well, let's dive into some of those. And I was specifically one that looked very prop heavy was when Ram is fighting, I think, a character named Necro. And the match itself is extremely violent. Uh, I mean, first of all, breakaway chairs. I, there were a bunch of those. Is there a place that sells breakaway chairs just for movies or, or for movies and wrestling? Like, where did you guys get those, that kind of prop?
1: I think we got that. it was a, like a rubber chair that looked like a regular folding chair, but it was soft. And I don't remember where that that was made or if we got that from like a wrestling supply place or where where that came from. I don't remember.
2: Was that maybe more from uh, like ISS or something, Jeff? Because at that time, too, I mean, there were fewer places for custom manufactured props than there are today, especially in the New York area. I mean, now in New York, there are a couple of places that will custom make you anything. But at that time, I, I think there was ISS and then there was Alfonso's Breakaway Glass. Both in LA, so you would have to order this stuff stuff ahead of time, so that you know you'd get it by the time you needed to shoot it. Yeah,
1: I, do, I don't remember. I do remember there was a wrestler who was, who was sitting down after all the wrestlers had left, who was still sitting there holding like an ice pack over his bleeding head, and I asked him how many times have you been hit in the head with a folding chair, and he I think he said three hundred and fifty, <laughs> and then he mentioned that he had a um, a degree in business economics, which is curious career choice to get hit in the head repeatedly with a chair.
2: Um, I, I, if you don't mind, I want to segue this because Jeff was talking about somebody willingly taking uh, taking a certain amount of pain for the sake of the act and the necro butcher, uh, and you might be leading to this anyway, Skid, but the necro butcher had, a, had part of his act was to take a dollar bill, put it to his forehead. And staple it to his forehead. And it's like, well, how did how did the prop department do it? The question is, the prop department handed him the staple gun. And
1: no, was, we 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 no. had, those were those were staples that were had been in alcohol.
2: Okay, they had been in alcohol. <laughs> and, and they were and they were what, quarter inch staples, Jeff? Or? Yeah,
1: yeah quarter inch
2: staples. Well, this is what I do remember. And and, and this might be one of those Rashomon episodes, kid. But I, what I do remember, I was talking to the necro-butcher between takes. I asked him, so, so what do you do? You know, you're actually stapling a dollar bill to your skull. Like, how do you not get brain damage from that? he said, oh, well, you know, the human skull is three-eighths-inch thick. And as long as we use <laughs> quarter-inch staples, we're good.
1: <laughs> yeah. He did that when we, were, we went to Philadelphia the first time, which is where we shot that hardcore wrestling match with all the you know, barbed wire and everything. He did several takes where he stapled the $5 bill to his forehead. We went back weeks later for him to do it again. I don't know if that was the sole purpose of going back to Philadelphia, but they didn't like the way it looked when they did it the first time. So they did a couple more takes of him, and it still wasn't looking right. And he wanted to practice one, like without the camera rolling. And I had to explain to him that, no, let's just – we're going to (laughs) roll. Yeah, he had to have done it. I mean, he does it as part of his act, so he's probably done it hundreds of times. But he did it for us at least six times.
0: Now, also in that match, you mentioned the the barbed wire. There's barbed wire. There's broken glass. Is that are those prop items? Are you you guys are bringing the barbed wire that they're going to use, or the glass, or tell me more yeah. about there's just the various props in that.
1: The barbed wire was fake. It's you know plastic. The breakaway glass was all uh, fake, except there's a point where Mickey's stunt double is launched back into uh, like a four by eight sheet of tempered glass that's in the corner of the ring. And when he, and he goes through it, it's detonated by a charge, but he's still jamming his back into the turnbuckle with the tempered glass in between. And so he had to go to the hospital for some stitches. And then there were also the tables they crashed through. They fall off ladders and crash through tables. Then the scenes where When Necro Butcher staples a dollar bill to his forehead, that was real. But then he turns and he he staples Mickey a bunch of times in the chest. That was fake. They added those staples in post. And we had a bunch of uh, thumbtacks. When they land on the table, they were they're real thumbtack heads with where we had cut off the metal part and put in a a little plastic pointy part. And then and ended up with those, uh, you know, working with the makeup department. Judy Chen was the makeup artist, who's a genius. But we worked with her to. You know, affix those staple heads to Mickey. You know, in the scenes where they get pulled out and stuff.
0: He gets him with a fork at some point in that match.
1: Again, yeah, Mickey. Had, Mickey had a problem it. with the. Yeah, and then Mickey had a problem with it because I didn't have a, a rubber or plastic fork. I had a fork where I just kind of dulled down the the times. Is that what you call them? And Mickey really wasn't having it. He didn't. He, he was. He He was not happy about that. I guess. I guess we let him down on that.
0: Trash can. I mean, you got to choose somebody gets hit with a trash can again. Well, that was at this point, right? That's not just set dressing.
1: That was props. And the way that worked was like, okay, we're going to shoot this scene in 10 minutes quickly. Let's fill it up. So we filled it up with newspaper and, and, you know, packaging and this kind of stuff. And then, and I went and I showed it to Necro butcher and said, this is what he's Mickey's going to dump on you. It's like, you know, and then we had some time. So we added like pizza crusts and hot dogs and, mustard and ketchup and stuff like that and then neglected to let necro butcher know so when when it got dumped on it he was surprised that there was a little bit more in there than just paper and stuff
2: i think that was my job that day to like (laughs) fish go around all the trash cans find pizza crust find 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 soda cups whatever find find the shittiest stuff and throw it in there
0: so you didn't have to reset that one it sounds like you shot that one once
1: i think that was a one take um as i recall and i watched it the other night and it and that was the other one where suddenly it's use my leg, use my leg. And we didn't, you know, the, the prosthetic leg thing was was absolutely off the cuff. That when we showed up to work that day, there was a veteran there and somehow the idea came up that Mickey should use his leg. And, and that uh, was so we, we had, funny we, too. We had nothing to do with it, but it was, yeah. It was yep. so
2: funny in the movie too, where, where the crowd, I, did they, I think, I don't know if Darren just told them to or they did it on their own, where the crowd starts shouting, chanting, use the leg. Use the leg, it's great in the movie.
0: I was going to ask about the artificial leg, so that wasn't scripted, you didn't come in with an artificial leg, there just happened to be a guy in the background with an artificial leg.
1: Yeah. And that's the kind of thing too. Where if they had written that, we would have had to probably spend fifteen thousand dollars or go to ridiculous lengths to try to get some prosthetic leg company to allow us to use their leg or loan us a leg or something. And so the the fact that it that was as simple as it was was great. But but also I kind of cringe when when uh, when he uses the leg because of those things are so valuable and so you know, critical that like what are we doing? <laughs> but it wasn't our idea.
2: I, I seem to remember Jeff that that there was a certain amount of improv in throughout that whole movie of somebody has an idea quick let's get it let's do it because I would occasionally like in the middle of the day just jump in the car and drive down the jersey turnpike to get something you know I I remember like especially in the mornings Mickey Mickey would come in in the morning and say I've got this idea I want this thing and a couple of times I would just get in the car and drive until I got it
1: but I think partly that was Mickey's trick of I need another minute to go over my lines and stuff. So he would ask for kind of an obscure prop to try to buy some time.
2: One day he, he was like, I want to drink a Coke in the scene, but it has to be in a glass bottle. And at that time that was, I think Coke only put out glass bottle Coke at, at Christmas and we weren't filming it around Christmas. I think I did find it somewhere. And by the time I got back, of course, that scene was shot. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, when we were talking about the violent match, there was one other thing that occurred to me and that's, there's a lot of stuff in that scene, and some of it impromptu, as you said, but just a ton of stuff to keep track of.
1: And we had a, an additional prop with us in Philadelphia, Dave, the late great Dave McCall, but he was really there just to lend a hand. Tim Grimes, the production designer, I know he was all over, you know, the, the hand props. You know, I, I there's a clip on YouTube of all of us working on on the, one of those scenes, and uh, he's in the ring, you know, moving stuff around, and I know, like, there's the breakaway window that um, Mickey crashes over Necro Butcher's head. That was put together by the set dressing department because they had better access to window frames than we did. Yeah, I mean, it was a collaborative effort you know, between the art department and us. You
2: know, Darren, especially at that time, you know, the wrestler, I remember Jeff called me prior to my, my working with him on this. And he said, hey, would you want to work on a low budget wrestling movie with Mickey Rourke? Who was as cold as could be at that time in terms of his career you know i was like i don't know you know i i might want to do something that makes me some money he said it was with darren aronofsky so of course i did it but you know it was still a low budget film i don't know what tier it was uh in terms of our pay scale but it was it was a low budget movie so you do need that collaborative effort you know you do need to lean on the other departments if you want to get the job done i love working on low budget movies for that reason too that there does become a familial atmosphere that it's like, I can come to somebody and say, Hey, could you help me do this? Or, you know, you're just working so intimately with the camera crew because certain gags have to come in and out of that long take at certain times. So you really, you really work together in in a way that you don't always do on the bigger stuff.
0: So, and we've talked about it on the show before, where particularly in a low budget situation, the crew really comes together. You felt on this set that folks did come together. Um, does Darren run a set that encourages the crew to be collaborative and work together, particularly in these well-budget situations?
1: It's funny, the idea that, that um, I think Darren does run that set, but it's not like a – oh, I don't know. I mean, I was going to say it's not like a touchy-feely environment, but in a, in a sense it is. At the beginning of all his movies, the entire crew stands in a circle and holds hands, and he says a few words. Do you
2: remember what he said at that at the circle? Because I do.
1: Of course I don't.
2: He said, <laughs> as we formed our circle – he said, I just want to tell you, I consider Mickey Rourke the greatest actor on this planet. And I want to give him a movie to show the rest of the world how great he really is. And also, I do I do know, because I had read about it somewhere, he had opportunities to make The Wrestler, like a year or two prior, with Nicolas Cage, in the movie <clears> part, <throat> for a lot more money. And he turned it down. He said, no, this is Mickey's movie. I wrote it for Mickey. I'm, I'm going to in independently finance this, and he did. And so, I, th- I think you can't help but be affected by that.
1: But I think partly the, 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 what I was going to say for, for earlier is I don't feel like he necessarily cultivates an a- an atmosphere of collaboration. But I think he does. I think I think. But it, but it's sort of like here we go. Hold on. It's uh, and we're all kind of running behind trying to trying to keep up. Darren, more than any director that I've worked with, ha- has an absolute clear. Vision on pretty much exactly what he wants to do, and there's very little hesitance. So you kind of have to, you know, keep up.
2: Yeah, and I actually was Darren's prop master for his next movie, Black Swan, and it was a very different approach, both uh, the way we filmed it, and and I think even how the set was run than the rest, of it. because that was a much more formal movie. Yeah, there were there were the the, the trademark uh, handheld falling behind the shoulders shots but there was a lot more sort of formality to the movie because of the subject. It's ballet versus wrestling, which is much more down and dirty, uh, but just the cinematic style. And I think that in a, in a certain way that affected the interaction. And, and Darren is, is, I mean, he, he not only is convinced he's the smartest person in the room, he really is. He's the smartest person in pretty much any room he will enter. In general, you want to please the director. That's, we're all here to give the director his or her vision. But in the case of Darren, I at least, and I know Jeff did too, you really respect that vision. And and you're just going to bust your ass to help him get it. And he is very specific. And you try as as hard as you ever will in your life to give him what he's asking for.
0: Let me ask you guys about what he asked for, what you provided in some other uh, scenes in the movie. There's a scene where the wrestlers are signing materials. That's a lot of material. Set dressing provide a lot of that? Or are you guys supposed to come up with all these videotapes and posters and things like that for a scene.
1: Most of that came from set dressing. We, we provided his, um, he had a Polaroid camera that he uh, took pictures with some people with. I had that, that one of those photographs of, of, uh, that he took of the Polaroid on my set box for years. Finally, it fell apart. But yeah, that was almost all of them. We had, there was a, 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 a former wrestler had a, uh, a urine bag that was kind of fills up on cue that we had to, to work during that scene that Mickey notices and is saddened by. But most of the memorabilia, the stuff that was on the tables, all that that came from the art department.
0: And is that wrestler, he's in a wheelchair as well, right? Is that, you guys provide yeah. the wheelchair? So he's an actor, not a real wrestler, former wrestler in a wheelchair, or you might not remember specifically who was in it, but you guys propped all of that out, it sounds like.
1: I don't remember whether we provided the, the wheelchair or not. Do you, Dan?
0: I don't. We probably had a wheelchair with us just in case to
2: cover our asses, but there was so much verisimilitude on that set, you know, real people in wheelchairs, real whatevers that I, it wouldn't have surprised me if it, if it was just his wheelchair. But you did that. You did that urine uh, bag gag. You you were the one I think doing that with a what with what a hypodermic uh, and a tube.
1: Yeah, I think uh, like an oversized yeah, syringe. Yeah. Yeah, syringe. Yeah.
0: Well, while we're talking about meds. Similarly, there's a scene later in a bathroom where uh, Mickey Rourke's character is using cocaine. How do you put a prop like that together?
1: We used uh, Inositol or Inositol. I'm not, I like to pronounce it Inositol because it's cocaine. Um, but it's it's the world's most popular cocaine cut to vitamin B um, derivative, I guess. And um, yeah, it's uh, it gives you a slight energy lift, but it's um, otherwise, you know, very easy to to use you know, the way you use cocaine.
2: Yeah, that's what I use too. I've I've had entire uh, drug lab scenes in other movies and shows where it, I just I just order that stuff by like the five gallon bucket to have big piles of fake coke for actors to jam their faces in.
0: <laughs> and to be clear, Jay, that's what you use as well. It means what you use in propping other movies, <laughs> not what you're using for a little kick on set. I'm
2: no, not me. Not me. <laughs> But no, so I, I, I learned it because I stole it from Jeff. Like once I learned, oh, that's what we use for fake cocaine. That's what Jeff uses. I'll use it too. And, and so much of what I've done uh, in my career has been because, well, Jeff did it. I'll do it too.
0: Well, still on the props front, but let's change tracks. Talk to me about strip club scenes. Mirza Tomei plays a stripper that uh, uh, Mickey Rourke's character is, it's something to have a relationship with. How do you prop a strip club scene?
2: I learned another good lesson from Jeff on that, which is when you do a strip club scene and you're handing out money to give to the background to stuff into the, uh, the, the, the dancers' various uh, articles of clothing, don't give them fake money. Get from the, the accounting department the day before, so get like $100 worth of singles. And hand those out, even though it's real money, and you're gonna lose, let's say, $30 out of that 100. It's better than having a bunch of background people walking around with stolen fake money that say motion picture use only, that they are going to stupidly try to use in a store, get caught, and blame you. <laughs> it's much better to go with the $30 loss. And I've done that in strip club scenes ever since. And unfortunately, like every other show I've done, has a strip club scene
1: unfortunately
2: (laughs) well it's it's, I I just get tired of seeing also not only the strip club scenes are done period I don't whatever but they're they're always done so badly but that's a whole other podcast
1: they're all not this one
2: though well not this one this one was done very well but but we didn't fall prey to the cliche of them all wearing bikinis and doing these elaborate waterfalls and and stunts they just they it was like strip clubs which I have been to recreationally uh, really are. That's what, that's what they're like.
1: I so thought when Marissa's it, performance was great. I thought that, you know, you really felt that, that, you know, this is where she worked and this is who she was.
2: Yeah. She was robbed. She, I know she got nominated. I can't remember who won, but man, she was good.
0: Now you talk about the money handout. I'm imagining there are drinks, there are trays, there are other just sort of large amounts of prop material that you guys need to provide for these scenes.
1: Like any bar scene, you, you, what you normally do is just go in and use the glassware that's in the bar for the most part, you know, unless they, they, you know, if somebody's written martini and they don't have martini glasses, we just use what's there. And we mix drinks out of soda, mostly from the soda, no, the fountain. And um, we bring in non-alcoholic beer and, uh, you know, grape juice or, or fake wine for wine. Yeah, and then we have rubber ice for um, so people can have ice without it making noise during filming. That's yeah, uh, yeah,
2: and those kind of scenes—that's where I'm usually busy, very busy. Jeff, Jeff might not be as busy; he might be setting up the big props, the main things. Whereas I, I me, and and what was our guy's name? Clay was Clay. Yeah.
1: No, with? It was, no, it was um, it was Owen.
2: Owen. Yeah, Owen and I would would be the ones like just. You know, doing dozens of glasses with the with the with the rubber rubber ice and filling, you know, just doing creative combinations to, to make interesting colors and all oh, this looks like bourbon, but it's really watered coke whatever. That would keep us busy all day. And of course, background being background, sometimes they'd like drink it all up and be like, Can I have more? It's like no <laughs> <laughs> craft service.
1: Now you're a waiter. <laughs> Well, talk to me
0: about another scene as well that uh, caught my eye. There's a supermarket deli counter where hmm. Ram works to make money when he's not wrestling. I read online that Mickey Rourke served real customers, but I'm wondering how that works for you guys between props, set dressing, and actual real food. How'd that work?
1: I, we used mostly what was in the deli counter. Uh, I remember, yeah, I watched that, that scene recently. There was some business with the rotisserie chicken, and there was some business with some potato salad that he ends up throwing to a customer, and that was um those were real customers that they you know that Mickey just served and I don't know if they even knew that they were you know that he was Mickey Rourke or, wh- or what was going on the the best bit from our memory from from that bit was the um the meat cutter scene where he cuts his thumb uh the visual effects makeup guys who I just worked with again on Jarmish's um the Dead don't die they're absolutely brilliant, just great great artists for special effects makeup. But the the at that time, they weren't quite as savvy when it came to mechanical makeup effects. And I, when they showed up that morning, they said, do you have any plastic tubing? Now this is the scene where Mickey Worker is supposed to have blood spurting from his thumb after he's cut it in the meat grinder, meat slicer. If you're showing up that morning looking for rubber tubing, you're gonna have a bad day. And they <laughs> really did, because it was something like 13 takes where he's supposed to cut his thumb in the meat slicer and the camera follows him all the way out to the parking lot and he gets in his car and it's supposed to be spurting blood the whole time and by take 13 it still wasn't happening and mickey at one point he, he just he, he he turns to uh to somebody on the crew he says see that guy over there and he points to me and he goes he's bringing it you guys you're not bringing it. And the, the, and the, the makeup, uh, the uh, visual effects makeup guy got, got upset and he quit. You know, and then like 30 seconds later, he was back and, and they eventually got it. But it was really, it was really a rough day. And the, and I had it easy. There's a little bit of a thing in the making of on the DVD with the meat slicer, where Darren is explaining what he wants. It's like, I don't want it to be a spray as much as, like, like finer than that. And I, I say, like a mist? He goes, yeah, like a mist. <laughs> and But the, the thing was, all I had to do was lay on the ground under the meat slicer with a paint sprayer with blood in it and at the right moment just pull the trigger and just squirt, you know, blood out of the Hudson sprayer and it, and it looked like it was coming out of the meat grind. It was the most easiest low-budget special effect in the world. But I ended up looking like a hero. And these guys who are really doing hard and beautiful work didn't come out looking so good that day. But but I think their work looks great in the film.
2: They've come a long way. Yeah, they worked with us on uh, Black Swan. They're great guys. And yeah.
1: Amazingly talented.
2: But, you know, so much has changed, too, since 2008 when we made this in terms of, you know, so much was expected of prop people and effects people in terms of being able to conjure practical on set effects that nowadays it'd just be like, well, we'll put it in post, you know, we'll, blood is post, even gunshots now where there's so much less, and I know this is straying, but there's so much less emphasis now on like, well, you have to bring blanks and all this stuff. It's like, no, just bring a gun. We'll put the, we'll put the flash and the smoke in, in post. It's, it's safer and it's, it's, it's quicker and easier. Uh, so it's, it's the expectations in 2008 we're, we're so much higher on us, you know, there's sort of more experimenting necessary to the process than there is now.
1: Well, you I, couldn't make a mistake, you, you know. Nowadays, you know, if, that, if something isn't perfect, they can clean it up in post. But back then, back then, it's like, if you didn't get it, you didn't get it.
2: Well, yeah, and with those long takes too, as you explained with Darren. And, you know, I don't, I don't think Darren was a yeller, do you? He was, he. but when he was unhappy, it was palpable. It was like when your dad is mad in the <laughs> house, and your dad may not be a yeller, but boy, you know it when dad is not happy. And he was, I, I know how, I remember how unhappy he was that
1: day. He, he, the thing was, I remember him snapping his fingers at a grip because he wanted his Apple box so he could sit down and get a better view of what was going on. And I remember thinking, you're going to get punched in the nose, you know. But, but then I, and I realized that he is so committed to doing great work. He is so, you know, behind the project that you really can't help but get behind that and you you forgive him a lot because you understand he's being short or whatever he's doing that where, where he could, you know, his behavior could be better. It's really all toward making the greatest movie he can make. And that's why we're there. So you can't really fault him. You know, it's, it's, um, but I think, I think he's also, um, he's not a bad guy. You know, he's, it's just, he's, he's a bit single-minded sometimes. And, and, you know, but again, it's toward why we're all there. So it's, Forgivable. And the proof is up on the screen.
2: You know, by and large, even when his movies have not been 100% successful, they've been audacious and there's been nothing like them. And sometimes they've been freaking great. I think The Wrestler is his best movie.
0: Well, I want to ask about some hero props that I think you guys probably coordinated with Darren in advance of filming, but tell me if anything odd came up. Comes to mind there's a Nintendo video game system where they're playing Wrestle Jam 88. It's got the RAM character in it. It's got the, I forget if it's the sheet character, whoever is major match. How do you get something like that prepared in advance?
1: We bought the Nintendo and the art department did the hard part. We didn't have really had nothing to do with the, uh, the playback. And I don't know if the, the gameplay was actually interactive or if it was just a, a video and they were, you know, playing as if they were—they were playing it. Um, I remember
2: it as being just a video, and it might have been Mike Syme or one of those people. Mike Syme is a guy that does like all of the video and video screen effects and computer effects in the city these days.
1: But nowadays, of course, that scene would have been done completely in post. Huh. But I have to—that that, there's a there's a scene where um, Mickey wrestles with some, a bunch of kids, and my son Jake got to be one of those kids, and Mickey and. Uh, Darren were talking, and Mickey, you know, said of my son that he wanted him to play the part of the kid playing video games, or wished that he was, because he seemed real, and he he said he looked like he was lit from the inside, which I thought was wonderful to hear. Um, Yeah, so whenever I see that scene, I'm a little bit resentful that it's not my son he's playing video games with, but I'm glad that my son got to got to be in the movie he's got his his uh, first paycheck there <laughs> fr- framed on the wall upstairs in, in the office what about
0: the action figure that sits on mickey's dashboard he later gives it um, risa tomei for her child something you designed in advance for that is that? i think that's probably scripted
1: that was scripted that was um a collaboration tim grimes the production designer uh worked with i think our our on-set scenic and I'm going to embarrass myself by not being remembering his name. The two of them uh, put that worked that out together. And it was a little bit of a problem because it wasn't ready the first time it was supposed to play. So there, there's a scene inside the van where you're looking out the front windshield and the, and the figure is on the dashboard in silhouette. And it's actually an entirely different action figure that, that we just, we painted black and put there because we weren't ready.
2: But uh, Tim Grimes, by the way, too, Tim started out in props. Tim. Tim, I think, still holds his 52 card. And wasn't Tim one of your assistants on something, Jeff?
1: Tim, my history with Tim is that I I met him something like 15 or 20 years ago in an elevator when he was a, a production assistant, and he was talking about I don't know if he was asking if he should work in the art department or work in the prop department or what he should do. And I told him he should work in the locations department because that way you can work your way up. <laughs> you won't hit the glass ceiling that, that uh, the prop department hits. And, of course, he didn't listen to me. He became a production designer and my boss. <laughs> <laughs> but then the movie right after The Wrestler, I went and did um, a movie in Detroit called Whip It that Drew Barrymore directed. And uh, Tim was my assistant for that movie. Which was kind of funny for him to go from being my boss production designer to, to the second prop on uh, on the next movie. He's a great guy.
2: Great guy. I did a I did a job where he was a production designer and I wound up getting fired because the director just didn't like me. And he was he couldn't have been sweeter and they Dan, it's not you, it's him, but you know, here's your plane ticket. No shame in it. It wasn't it was just a clash of personalities, let's just say.
0: Well, coming back to props, guys, I know on a normal set, props will provide watches and rings and other small things. In the wrestler, uh, Mickey Rourke wears a hearing aid. Is that something you guys brought a bunch in for him to try, or was it Darren who chose it in advance? Like, How would the hearing aid come together? Was that a prop for you guys to provide?
1: That was a prop. I don't remember providing options. Maybe we showed him pictures, but I just remember ordering. I think we bought those on eBay or something like that, and we had about six of them. we still got a couple kicking around here somewhere. And we, we dirtied him up. And that, the big challenge with that one was just remembering to stick it in his ear because he was supposed to have it all the time. And uh, it's an easy, you know, we're not used to hearing AIDS. And so it was an easy thing to, to overlook.
0: And then tell me about the scene where Mickey Rourke takes a razor blade and puts it in his wrist guard. Later in the match, he uses it to cut his head and just props, wardrobe. How does something like that come together? Because there's a lot, of, a lot of moving pieces on that one.
1: That one, we worked really hard to come up with the right double-edged razors that, that uh, just looked cool. And then we went to, bought several different pairs of scissors because he's in the scene, he, he's cutting the corner off the razor blade. And I'm, you know, there kind of preparing the scene where he cuts it. And Mickey picked up one that I cut off as a test. And he said, oh, this is the one I'm going to use. And I went, I, uh, what? Like, was kind of surprised because I, I, it was news to me that he was going to use a real blade. We had, I think we had little plastic pieces for him to fake it and which I was, you know, preparing for him to tape into his, you know, wrist. But he, um, he took one of the dulled, you know, razor blades, the corners that I'd cut off and said he was going to use that. And I, and I thought, do you not at least want to use a sharp razor blade if you're going to actually cut yourself? And I don't know whether he used a sharp blade or a dull blade. But I remember I was just doing my petty cash at the concession stand at the wrestling venue and thought, oh, I bet it's about time for Mickey to cut himself. And I just wandered over and behind the camera and looked. And sure enough, he just took the blade out and just cut an inch and a half long cut into his forehead. And that was, um, that was all 100% real. You know, it wasn't what we were planning, what we thought was going to happen. But that's what he decided to do. And that's what he did. And and the thing too that your listeners,
2: I, I I'm guessing that most of your listeners work in the business or at least very very interested in the business of, of of making movies. But on especially on low budget, on all movie sets, but especially low budget, and certainly in the case of the wrestler, this was all done in a few seconds. Really, it, it just it, the the time just flies, and you're in the moment, and everything's happening so fast. So one minute you're like, well, here's the rubber razor blade, and 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 Mickey's gonna take the rubber and he's gonna pretend to cut himself and the makeup person will come in and and, and put us put a scar on and we'll do all that, you know, while the cameras are rolling. That changes in just a few seconds to, oh no, wait a minute, Mickey's just gonna cut himself and and we're gonna film that. It happens so quickly, everything happens so quickly that you just have to go with it. You know, you can't freak out. You just have to you have to accept what, what is given to you, and Jeff certainly did uh, many times on the list.
1: I, I don't know. I'm, I question my judgment about some of that, but I but I I wanted to feel like I was supporting what what they were trying to do, but like, they, they um, early on a, a, the first AD, our first first AD, we had a meeting and we were talking. I can't remember what we were talking about, but they were talking about doing things real, and that was his last day. He quit. He was like, "I'm not going to be a part of this. This job's crazy." I don't think that he necessarily did the wrong thing. You know, they're they're. Um, it's it's tough when you're in the position of having to support people like Mickey and Darren who are, you know, on this adventure to do something really great, but they are, you know, they're people who want a lot of realism and they, and they like to break rules and, you know, and I don't want to be, I don't want to be a part of somebody getting hurt or something like that, but I also don't want to be the prop guy who's too timid to support them in in trying to do, um, to be realistic. Uh, But there were a number of of times on this where it was a real challenge to, you know, because we were there to, you know, fake it. And there there was another scene where, you know, I hear Darren say to Mickey, don't you think Jeff should sterilize that? And I thought, oh, here we go. And, you know, and and it was Mickey was supposed to get drunk and be in his trailer bathroom and and take, and and unscripted, take out a knife and start cutting himself. And uh, the first thing was get rid of this fake wine and make it drank a bottle and a half of wine and then next thing he's cutting himself up in the mirror and uh we did two takes and they wrapped for the night and danielle you know his trainer and i i worked on a boxing movie with john Legazamo years ago and uh you are a prop master on a boxing movie it's a lot like being a corner guy you're the one putting the mouthpiece in and out and you're the one imitating what the the corner guys really do and so you know i'm shoving Vaseline into Mickey's cuts and Danielle's cleaning him up and Mickey's, you know, says, you got me drunk. And, uh, but he, he's having a great time. He's living his boxing days. I'm reliving my corner man days. I'm not sure what Danielle was reliving, but you know, it was, it was, it was a great moment. And at the end of the day, he was fine. But, uh, but it was, it's a, uh, you know, there were a number of times where it was, um, Oh no, here we go.
0: Well, how did the yeah. other actors take to this environment? Um, uh, Marisa Tomei or, uh, Evan Rachel Wood, any particular stories of their interaction with props, or are they just kind of in the orbit around this uh, Darren and Mickey show?
1: Well, I mean, most of the insanity was was Mickey alone or Mickey in the ring. The, the stuff with Marissa, and yeah, but I, I don't, I, I, I think, you know, they were, they were, you know, Evan Rachel Wood and Marissa Tomei, I think were, were, were pretty much isolated from a lot of the insanity.
2: It, I, I've said a lot of times when I've talked about having worked on this movie, that it's it's the closest I've ever come to having worked on a documentary. Uh, Mickey really, he didn't just do that. I The thing is, that the line between Randy the Ram and Mickey Rourke, th- there weren't really that many lines between them. I mean, if you think a second, the story of The Wrestler is about this guy who was big in the 80s, And then he kind of had a falling out and then he had a chance to, 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 to reappear and and to, and to become publicly prominent again. Well, that's the Mickey Rourke story too. That's exactly why I think Darren, you know, as he said, he wanted to make the movie. He wanted to remind the world that that Mickey was a great actor and Mickey inhabited this role. I think it goes even beyond the Daniel Day Lewis thing of, of, you know, everybody has to call you Abe Lincoln and all that stuff. I, I think that, that, that Mickey just saw himself as the ram, and he really wasn't mickey and 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 so so much of this is I'm going to just do these things because I want to experience what this really feels like, and then let my behavior be dictated by those feelings and is it irresponsible uh in terms of a filmmaking point of view absolutely i I, I do I think it's 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 quite irresponsible, and I know there are actors who are capable of doing that without going to them. Needs, But on the other hand, this is Mickey's movie. It was written for him, created for him. So you either go with it, you quit like the AD, or you, you stick around and you, you just try to keep your own sense of what's right and wrong as together as you can and, and follow your principles. Um, I will say, I, I don't mean to go on and on, but there is one other thing that we talked about earlier that I, I think was important to me, which was when we did that Philadelphia scene, at the at that ring, those were real wrestling fans. Philadelphia is a tough town. It's it's a lot, it's very blue collar. There's there, and, and so we had the audience there, there were kids there with mohawks, there were a lot of people dressed in camouflage and like fuck you shirts and all of this stuff. These were real, this is real American stuff going on. And these people, like during these wrestling matches, they were just screaming out the most vicious stuff. Their kids would be like, Fuck you asshole, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Calling people the F word. I don't, it was It was really like being at, uh, I don't want to be political. Here, a
1: Trump rally. A
2: Trump rally. <laughs> a Trump rally on steroids, so to speak. And it, 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 personally, it upset me so much. I don't know if Jeff remembers this. There was a certain point, I just had to walk away. I walked away from the set, and I just found a place that was like off, a, a distance away, and I, I just I just hung out by myself and, and away from that noise and away from that atmosphere. I couldn't take it. It was it was too real for me. That much hatred, that much bloodthirstiness, especially when I saw the kids raising their middle fingers and calling people the f word. That was just too much for me.
0: Well, guys, this was a really intense film. It's clear from the stories you've told. But in service of this being a prop focus episode, I want to take advantage of the history that you guys had. As I mentioned at the start, you have known each other for more than thirty years. You got a ton of credits between you, both separate and overlapping. From a props perspective, how did The Wrestler compare to other films you've
1: worked on? Yeah, I guess that the thing about The Wrestler was just that the props in The Wrestler were, you know, most of them that 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 I remember revolve around wrestling. And so they were, they were ridiculous things like, you know, a crutch wrapped in barbed wire, or we had a uh, a pogo pony. What do you call that? A pony's head on a stick. Wrapped in barbed wire and hobby um, horse, hobby
2: horse.
1: Hob- hobby horse, wrapped in barbed wire. and a tennis racket, you know, wrapped in barbed wire and and a lot of these things didn't come into play, but it was just that was the kind of you know it's this hardcore wrestling that they do in Philadelphia where you know they they do this kind of stuff and they're not using fake barbed wire. Uh, it, it was just strange to be involved in you know these instruments of destruction, and aside from the those props, I'm just trying to remember what the props were. I remember Owen Lamb at one point I guess Mickey was shaving. Um, this is probably a scene that didn't make in the movie. And the last second we needed a razor for that he could be shaving with, and you can't really just keep using a razor over and over again. So Owen like instantly removed the blades and found little steel rods to replace the blades that would roll as you, you know, as he shaved with it. And uh, I don't even know if he made it a movie, but I was like, this is an amazingly talented prop person who's able to like do this like so quickly and so perfectly. Oh, uh, uh, one prop that stands out is uh, in the scene where Mickey does uh, the lap dance for Marissa. She chugs a whole beer, and Marissa couldn't chug a whole beer, so we gave her a a beer bottle full of water, and unfortunately, it was a green bottle, and you can kind of tell that it's water. And I was watching the movie with my very good friend in in Minnesota, and that scene was going on, and somebody in the audience went, that's water. (laughs) (laughs)
2: yeah i mean the thing is too there are some movies you know you get you get an offer for a job they send you a script and you read that script and and besides trying to see if it's a good movie or a bad movie you you look at it for the props and and it's like okay what's what's this one gonna be and some movies are like oh people talk to one another they eat food they drive cars but then there are some like the wrestler or the one jeff and i did I, i can't remember before or after uh a Michelle Gondry movie called Be Kind, Rewind. I guess that
1: would be Before, after. I think. Well, before? Oh, think. was it?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but those, and, and then I like did, I did a kid's show many years before that called The Adventures of Pete and Pete. And in each of those cases, you read that and they're just full of gags. Whether it's somebody gets their head smashed with a window pane and, and, and Be Kind, Rewind. it's It's just, we have to recreate all these movies out of junkyard parts. And that was the thing. Michelle Gondry in that movie said, "I don't want any props that look like they were made by prop people. I want them to look like somebody went to a dollar store and made these things." And so we literally went to dollar stores, and that became the the source of of what we what we made a lot of our props for for that movie was. So in a in a certain way, when you read a script like like The Wrestler or Be Kind Rewind, you go, "Oh shit, how am I going to do this?" You know, that you very often. And again, this is. This is early 2000s, this is before CGI and things. You had to come up with, with, with very inventive ways to make things that weren't necessarily physically possible, physically possible. I just I just remember that on following, whatever, when we did Be Kind Rewind, just all the things that Jeff had to do to just sort of create out of nothingness and in and, and, and a way help design the movie because the props were so essential to the look of that movie and what the design actually was
1: yeah on be kind rewind a lot of the time it would be you know you know hand hand a sharpie and a piece of cardboard to michelle and he would he would you know and a pair of scissors and he would you know make the prop himself because it was he wanted it to be handmade he wanted it a specific way and at a certain point sometimes it was just like you know you, you're going to be happier if you just do it yourself so here's the stuff yeah i have a, i have a tuba in my living room that has a mouthpiece made out of cardboard that michelle uh, made for the, for the tuba. I just remember
2: also, Jeff, when I was with you on The Kind Rewind, that I became such a regular at dollar stores in Passaic, New Jersey and Salvation Armies that when I would come into those places, I'd hear literally somebody say, he's here! <laughs> because <of this. laughs> They knew I was going to spend a couple of hundred bucks in one fell swoop. I would, I would take care of their daily quota uh, by, by nine in the morning. And yeah, that was just a lot of fun. Not fun for you, but it was fun for me.
1: <laughs> oh, that I, that movie was fun when I when I stopped caring about Michelle yelling at me. When I when I accepted that, yeah, you know, that my job is to listen for the words that contain helpful information and and filter out the anger and the spittle. <laughs> it was
2: and French, right? He he would yell at you in French, right?
1: No, you no. my, my favorite time he yelled at me. He said spitting, am I not speaking English? <laughs> and I, honestly got, I, I
2: had a blast on that movie and I, you, you were the shock absorber for our department.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Well at the end of the producers said, you were real lightning rod on this job, weren't you? And it was like, and and I think she thought that it was like, I wasn't doing a good job or, or something like that. I really, I think it was more, you know, Michelle needed to yell at somebody and, and, uh, I think he's just used to the prop man. I remember at one point he said, you are not as bad as my last prop man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's just,
2: you know, he has these, Michelle is, he's gifted in that he has extremely unique visions. And he he creates entire movies, and, and, and if you've ever seen his videos too, they're fantastic. But they're things that don't exist on this planet. So your job is to create something that doesn't exist, and, but you have to interpret that from him, and, and yeah, there is French in in some of the things he'll say, and and you do have to just sort of try to to physicalize this concept that he has, and and, and you and I don't think anybody Jeff could 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 avoid having been yelled at by Michel Gondry, and 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 the fact that you handled it with such grace, it, it's remark it was remarkable, and. Uh, Sorry to tell you, I had a blast on that movie. I'm sorry you didn't.
1: <laughs> oh, no. no, I I feel like I think I did have a blast on it. I don't know. I I don't know. I I, I think part of um, brain damage is helpful as a prop man because you can um, you know, go through a really traumatic experience and then at, when it's all over, go, oh, that wasn't so bad. It really was that bad, I'm afraid.
0: Well, Jeff, I'm not sure that's unique to props. I think lots and lots of different... Folks on set will walk away with better memories uh, despite the abuse they suffer. I want to ask you guys a little more in just in terms of props over the years. As we mentioned, you guys met 30 years ago on Matewan when you are both production assistants. Be Kind, Rewind, you've been talking about. That came out the same year as The Wrestler, so basically a contemporary of that film. But you guys have been working since. And you mentioned earlier how digital has replaced a lot of what used to be practical prop work. What other trends or changes have you guys seen over time with props or even working with each other? Just, just give me more of that sense of, of history of props in general.
1: The, the biggest thing is phones. It used to be, you know, before there were cell phones, you'd have to, when actors had a conversation on a phone, you'd have to run them together with what we called a phone ringer. And when you pick up one phone, the other phone will ring. And when the actor picks it up, the, the, you know, an actor and an off-camera actor can have a conversation. And so we spent a lot of, you know, people talk on the phones and movies a lot. So we spent a lot of time doing that. Now with cell phones, it's just an entire different thing. You know, it's, they're much more common than phones in general, because people always have them and use them for 19 different things. But it, I just, it just, I think that strikes me as one of the biggest changes over the years, just in terms of like day to day, what we do. Um, the, the, another one would be like Dan had mentioned firearms. You know, it used to be, you know, we would handle firearms a lot more now. Typically, there's an armorer if um, if there's any any kind of gunplay, and and often the effects, the the gun firing and the squib hits are all visual effects that are done later. So it's just much more of an actor holding a, a gun and saying bang than uh, than us having to be worried about gun safety and ear protection and eye protection and and all that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, if you don't mind me uh, bringing it around one more time to um to Black Swan too. Uh, You're talking about phones. Uh, when I did Black Swan, there is a scene where Natalie Portman is, calls her mother, played by Barbara Hershey, to say, "Mom, you know, I can't believe it. I got, I got the part of of the of the White Swan in Swan Lake. It's like the biggest moment in her life. It's what she's tried. She's been working for this entire time. And this was 2010. Uh, I think we used an iPhone or something like that. But it was very, very, very important for Darren." to to have a real phone connection on that day and to make the arrangements that Barbara wasn't with us yet she wouldn't come in until the last two weeks of filming but wherever Barbara was that day that we were going to film it that that she really be on the line with Barbara Hershey playing her mother and as you know we put all of this work into a, you know not just me and, the, and and making sure the phone worked because this was still early on when it's like is this thing going to work is it going to work you know yes we got a we, we, we did this whole thing to make it, now it's much easier, but in 2010, believe it or not, it was a big deal to make this, this happen. A live, inter, a live cell phone conversation on film was a big deal at that time. And of course, on the day, Barbara Hershey had another commitment, she couldn't do it and we wound up having the script woman do the, <laughs> do the reading <laughs> off camera. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of, you know, Jeff and my relationship, I mean, when I, after we had both done Mate One, I, I was still living in West Virginia and I had made enough money on Mate One that I decided, well, I'm going to move to New York. And as it happened, Jeff.
1: Well, Jeff, you won the Mets pool.
2: Well, I won the Mets pool. That's a whole other thing. I won, <laughs> I won the crew. The, 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 the New York Mets and the Boston uh, Red Sox were playing each other in the series in 86. And I, I never, ever bet until the final game. And I wound up winning the whole damn pool. But I made $650 on that. But I had some other money from having worked <laughs> on that. So I took what money I had. I moved to New York. And I lived with Jeff for four years. They had an extra room in their apartment. So when you live with somebody, you, know, you really get to know them. You know, we see each other in our best and worst. Uh, Jeff, Jeff got to listen to me sing along to my, uh, my stereo through the, the other side <laughs> of the wall for four years and put up with it. So, but just that kind of communication, you can't beat it you know i i can sense you know when i have worked with jeff even now i still i'll come in i'll day play with him like madam secretary or whatever and uh, when he did that show and, and you know i can just sort of see sometimes like okay jeff's in a good mood so i can i can bring this up or no we're we're going to he's serious today you know there was big stuff going on you know let's let's hold off with the jokes just keep our head down um or he'll just say to me like uh fish can you go to the truck and get this you know whatever, and I know where it is on the truck. I've been on that truck so many times it I can do it very quickly because i I know where it is, uh, or I know what he's talking about. He and I are both movie fanatics, so if he references a movie, you know you reference taxi driver, I know what he's talking about, but not everybody, especially these days under the age of thirty or forty, might know that taxi driver reference or the fact that the gun dealer was played by Alan Garfield
1: <laughs> but I think also we we're both um you know, filmmaker wannabes. You know, you're you're a writer. I'm a director, but this is what we do. So I think we're we're a lot of the people that we're working with. Yeah, I've just run into um, a prop guy that I've known for a long time who used to give me a hard time because it's like you guys don't even want to be prop guys, and you guys <laughs> you guys have the jobs. But uh, I, I think that that I think it's something that helps both you and I do the work that we do and to work together is that we're you know we're not looking at it entirely from the perspective of people who are just Understand the world of props. You know, we're we're tr- we're trying to. Uh, I think we under, sort of understand what the filmmakers are trying to do, and and, and we're more method prop guys or something like that. And that we're we're we it, it's we we come from hopefully more of the point of view of the of the people who are making the film than uh, than other prop departments might.
2: Well, that's where you impressed me very early on. Uh, Maybe the first movie I was your second on was this thing called Thousand Pieces of Gold that we filmed in Montana together. And what I remember getting an impression from you was that you took a lot, you put a lot of care into, it wasn't just that you got the props, here's the prop, you put a lot of care and a lot of thought in how that prop looked and how aged or weathered it should be, or, you know, or, or things that weren't in the script. You know, what would be useful to that actor? Uh, for the scene, even if they chose not to use it, you'd have it on hand, and that made a big impression on me then and 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 I've tried to live up to that ever since and uh and then, yeah, and then what you said too, both you and I came from an outsider's point of view. you know when you and i were were getting into this, uh our union at the very least was still very much if you didn't have a father or an uncle you it was very hard to get in and there was there was a second union at that time called NABIT for more of the outsiders. And eventually NABIT and IOTS emerged. But neither you, I don't think you have any relatives in the business. I don't. We came no. into it all, all on our own and just sort of made up our own method and our own rules of of how we approach the work.
0: Well, that's interesting, guys. So if someone, if they were interested in starting out in props now, how else is it different? What else should someone do if really they're excited about the things you're talking about and props is where they want to. Find a movie career.
1: If you if you live in New York, you have to be prepared for a long application process. The a lot of times, fifty two, uh, our union, doesn't accept applications. You know, and in order to even to apply now, I think you have to take a lift test and some other kind of OSHA test. And then once you've applied, that what that qualifies you to do is to work if there are there's there are no union people available to work and, and there's a job. So applicants, a lot of the people that we work with now are applicants because New York has blown up in terms of television.
2: Pardon me for interrupting, but that's such a different experience than when I came to the city and was living with you. In 86, there was no permit set up. It was, you were either in the union and you got union work or you did non-union work. And when I was living with you in Long Island City, Jeff, I I would do like, I did a soft core porn movie. You know, I did whatever it was. Chuck Vincent. Yeah. And Chuck Vincent. Right. And and there were rock videos at that time were still really big. And I do those. I'd make as little as $50 a day. The most I made was $200 a day, flat rate, cash, so nobody had to pay taxes. But this idea, like my son now is, and I think your your sons are too, uh, my son is, is on the permit list. Uh, I can hire him. He's he's in grad school right now. I can hire I hire him once a week on the job I'm doing now. And and he comes in and after taxes he's making three hundred dollars a day, for a ten hour day, and right. that's that's great. And he's also learning alongside people who really know how to do this work. I'm not just flattering myself. I'm talking about our whole group of people around us. Or you know, I think your son's worked with you on the Jarmish movie, right? So they yep. learned from dad some things that that that. No, good thing.
1: <laughs> no, I what they learned. They learned they don't want to do this. That's what they learned.
2: Well, that's part of the goal too. Teach well, your a valuable kids. lesson. Teach your kids. Don't go into this business if you don't really want to do it. And, and no, my my son just looks at it like, hey, it's better than working at Cheesecake Factory, you know, where you make three hundred dollars a week. Here he can do it, he come in for it and they and you get coffee and they'll, and bagels and, you know, free free lunch. So this is this is all good. Well, you and I, I don't know about you, but I didn't have that opportunity when I first started. And, and yeah, it, certainly it's, it's the wild west right now in New York. There's so many streaming shows and stuff. If you wanted to start out, as you asked Skid about, well, how do I get into this? This is the time, baby. I don't, I don't know when when it will go bust, but for now it's all boom. And if you want to get into props or grip or camera or anything, there's, or acting, there's more opportunity now certainly in New York, and I'm sure in Atlanta, and probably LA, than, there, than there's ever been.
1: Yeah, these are the days of the lateral move. I, I just worked with a, a production manager who didn't seem like they knew what they were doing, and I looked up, up on IMDB, and they were a production manager on the, this job, but their last job, they were a production supervisor, and the job before that, they were a production coordinator. So you know, th- these are moves that, you, that in the old days would take a decade. And now they're, you know, one movie to the next. People are are rising. It's insane. It's a little embarrassing that I'm still a prop guy in the current environment. But uh, that has to do with effort more than anything.
0: Well, you guys have brought some prop expertise to our listeners today. Well, I don't miss being on set with you guys one bit. I do enjoy talking about the business. And you guys have really brought it today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys, for joining me today on Below the Line. Thanks, kid. Thank you, Skip listeners i'd love to hear what you thought of the episode you can send email to skid s-k-i-d at the line, one word, dot biz that's b-i-z i also appreciate your feedback via itunes where your ratings and comments really do help us reach new listeners and facebook where for your visual entertainment i post photos and other behind the scenes materials at podcast below the line finally you can follow the podcast on twitter and instagram it's at pod below the line Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Thanks again for listening. Hope you're enjoying our property department deep dives. Join us for another one next week.